0: Hello and welcome to Death of a Thousand Cuts, making you an awesome writer, one cut at a time. My name's Tim Clare, garrulous writer, man and friend to disheartened authors everywhere. If you're new, welcome. Pull up a stool, help yourself to tea, biscuits and please deposit any knives or firearms in the wire baskets by the entrance. You can reclaim them when you leave. If you leave, you will leave. It's fine. It's a podcast. I can't stop you from leaving. I apologise if my voice sounds husky and distractingly sexy today. I have a slightly sore throat. Those of you who've listened since the beginning will know there are several ways we do things here. Sometimes I talk about some aspect of fiction writing and try to give you advice on that thing. Sometimes I invite another author on and we chat about writing. At the moment, I'm trying to organise various guests for the upcoming weeks and months just because I do a lot of talking. But one person can only know so much. And intimidating polymath, though I am, both you and I would benefit from from hearing some different perspectives. There are many approaches to writing a book, as I'm sure you're already very aware, and I think you'll get the most value if you get to hear a range and assemble your own unique philosophy from parts of all of them. Eclecticism is my jam, guys. I think it's a very good way of going about one's life. You're probably well aware that my most recent project was the Couch to 80k writing boot camp. You may be working through it, not literally as we speak, but around our speaking. It's a full eight-week writing course by podcast all up online for you to stream. Or download, and it's free. Tim, why are you doing it for free? Because I'm not a very good businessman. If you want more information, I recorded a Couch to 80k writing bootcamp two minute pitch where I explain everything you need to know. I talk a bit fast in that one, and it's slightly charmless, but it does have. All the information. So, those of you who are currently working through it, thank you for your support. Thanks for all your messages and emails and thanks if you've chucked me a little change to my coffee page. That's KO-FI. I I appreciate it all and I'm rooting for you as you work through the course. I genuinely am. It's been so fun hearing what you're all up to. I get, you know, messages on... I took a week off social media last week and uh, I came back and there's just been loads of lovely messages from people saying they're working through it or just adding me in while they tell other people about. Some people have been writing blogs. It's been really exciting for me and really satisfying and really one of the reasons why I did it in the first place, because I, I just get a real bang out of doing creative writing workshops. And I think as a writer, you feed off the energy of other writers, like a like a kind of communist vampire, you know, you, the, the, in, in the sense you feed from each other's blood, but you share it around. It, 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 that was a really really bad analogy i'm sorry uh, it made it sound <laughs> made it sound like i was you know, i was like slipping in i guess anti-communist messages but in a context that was i don't know i'm sorry uh i like i say i've got a sore throat slightly under the weather but feeling very very happy at the moment do let me know how you get on when you're working through the course and uh what your experience is like there you go look i just you know you get to hear firsthand that i um write bad metaphors and bad lines a lot of the time The stuff comes out of my mouth that isn't uh, in the first instance um, excellent but we as writers have the power of time travel and we're able to go back and tweet those things I don't in this podcast because I'm lazy and don't like editing but you can as a writer you can make a bad metaphor and come back later and change it and that's one of the exciting and lovely things but you do have to have something to change in the first place look g- working through the course there's going to be some people you know people hit week one and tend to be having like a lovely time and just going isn't this fun i don't feel stressed and then they hit week two and it's not exactly grueling but um you know there's moments in it where they start to just be alone with their inner critic and that gets a bit more difficult and then as the weeks go on there's some more challenging uh weird exercises uh it's kind of like slightly pushing you a little bit more uh, and, and 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 people start to hit their blocks at different points during the course. Now I made it clear during the course. I hope that and I think it's true of all writing as well, even if you're not working through the course. If you're gonna write a novel or you're gonna write a short story or you're just gonna write a lot, there's gonna be days where you run into your inner critic, where you run into difficulties and it's really worth listening to what you tell yourself at those moments, whether how you deal with that, what your um in psychology they I've heard it referred to as your explanatory style. When a story isn't working What is your explanatory style for why it's not working? Uh, Mine for ages unhelpfully has been, uh, this is because you're bad at writing and a bad person and incompetent not necessarily a helpful way of going through it but I understand people don't want to ditch their inner critic because there's this fear that that is what's keeping you on the straight and narrow that is what is guarding against complacency and so there's always it's not true to say it's a balance because that is always the excuse to keep that self-criticism in there right that is what you go oh well I just want to keep a balance I don't want to let myself I don't want to lose my head but actually anything that is personalizing uh, an inadequacy in your writing that it's making about you that is, is, making it about a personality trait you have, or a crystallized talent or lack thereof that you have. That just you. This is because you are poor. This is because of an inadequacy. Anything that tends to see the problems in your writing as being as, as arising from a permanent facet of your personality, I think that is self-indulgent because it doesn't allow the opportunity for growth. It's certainly unhelpful because. It really, it actually, you know, without your realising it, actually you're abnegating yourself of responsibility because it's like, you know, what can you expect? I'm a, uh, I'm a fool. I'm a buffoon. How could I possibly write well? And it is excusing you. When actually it's like, you're fucking great. You're a human being who's been immersed in this world every day full of language, you've read some incredible stories. If you are a writer then you have read stories that have blown your mind. These things are the pinnacle of culture and therefore if humans are alone in the universe the pinnacle of intellectual endeavor in the arts in all existence and for all time. You've been allowed to read those, right? You don't have an excuse on that level. And it's not just because you're a bad filter of those things as well. I think you need to hold yourself to a higher standard. And telling yourself that you're shit at writing, you're a shit writer and a stupid person, is a way of letting yourself off the hook. I would go, come on. I can do better than this. I can do better than this. Let's have a... Let's take this back to the workshop and see if we can do better. That is... It's more work... It is more work but that is not letting yourself off the hook and I think it's the opposite of self-indulgence to maintain a high personal standard and you don't do that by flogging yourself. You do it by going, come on, I'm going to hold myself to the standards I hold the classics to, that I hold my favourite books to. That's what I'm going to do and that is true whether you're doing this course or you know, just in your general writing. It's good to hold yourself to high standards. Doesn't mean that you then deny yourself certain techniques. It doesn't mean that you deny yourself the technique of approaching a first draft without trying to get it perfect and just getting some bare bones down, getting a skeleton down. It's not holding yourself to a high standard to not allow yourself to ask for help, to ask for another set of eyes. Those are all things that give you the opportunity to improve your work. Therefore, not letting yourself do those, not not voluntarily, not having the personal creative sovereignty to go, I choose to write this section at a lower standard and to enjoy it and play because I think ultimately that is going to produce a better work and that's going to move this forward to the next level where I can start analysing it. If you're not prepared to do that, uh, that's not you holding yourself <laughs> to a high standard and it's not... That's just you being a dick to yourself. And that, yeah, the yeah, having an inner critic is fine and you'll never, ever get rid of the inner critic. And there's that great fear that if you did your writing would be rubbish. Well, I think having no ability to be self-reflective, no ability to analyse your work, no ability to have taste, um, certainly that's going to massively hinder your uh, ability to write. But all of those criticisms have to be on something that's in the text. And the text is inherently mutable and corrigible and provisional. It is not graven in stone. If you're writing your first drafts in stone is a poor writing material for what we're attempting to do so that's the way you can be the inner critic you can go this sentence is shit this is dog shit but it's not you and it's not your writing that is it's that one thing and i think by isolating your criticisms and keeping them specific and small and time limited this is a shit sentence now you're absolutely opening up the possibility of change and you are the only person who can make that change. Lecture over. What I'm saying is if you're working through the course, it's a big transformative thing doing all that work, doing eight weeks of work, probably more because you probably won't manage to keep up for six days a week every week. But you know, two, at least two months of essentially going on a course and taking your writing seriously. And I've made it so it really unmakes and remakes your writing practice from the ground up that was the only way I could make it so it was suitable for all levels of experience is to really take you back to your roots and 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 dig up all the assumptions that you've got and then work through at them again and see what you want to what works for you and what you want to chuck out so you can remake your writing practice but this time consciously choosing what parts you want to create and keep rather than the way that we all sort of grow as artists initially which is just a kind of ad hoc glue gunning together of different abilities and just trying to sort of like trying to like nail an aeroplane together while it's in the air plunging towards the ground hoping we can fly and it's 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 a bananas way to run a practice but like at some stage it's nice to be able to stop and and it's the amazing thing is that human beings make that work but it's nice to be able to stop and just have an appraise and see what is serving you and what isn't serving you but you're going to have a lot of different feelings, and some of the, the feelings you have going through the course, or writing a novel, or whatever you're doing in your own writing life, whenever you're cognizant of it, and you let yourself feel it, and you let yourself be present for it, you're going to have some pleasant feelings, and some feelings are going to be challenging, and I, I as much as I've tried to be positive during The Couch to 80K, if during your writing you feel have challenging feelings you feel self-criticism some bits are frustrating it doesn't mean that you're failing and i don't want you to take my kind of like chipper tone going, oh, yay, Woo! hey guys, welcome to the creative writing podcast. We all love writing. It's so fulfilling. I don't want you to take, I mean, I'm trying to provide a slight an- a- antidote to the kind of like a jokey gloom that a lot of writers put about going, God, God, don't we hate writing? God, we're always trying to skive off writing. Um, no, let's not cultivate that in ourselves. But just because if you're feeling crap sometimes, it doesn't mean that you've gone wrong or that or that Tim is gonna be secretly disappointed with you if he found out. i'm I'm delighted for people when they're having a good time and enjoying it. but I think it, just being a human alive in the world, you will you will you will experience a lot more stress if you start deciding that all the times in your life that you are sad or stressed or unhappy, that you've gone wrong and failed somehow. So like writing is gonna naturally a healthy, good, you know sustainable writing practice will still bring up challenging moments it will still bring up moments of confusion and frustration and blanks they will still happen hopefully not despair or at least I think if you're feeling despair that's something you can work on because but all those other things I think they're part of the they can be part of a healthy uh, satisfying practice and that can actually you know like in the same way that going for a run can be tiring uh, there's bits of it that you go oh God, I'm really knackering myself out there's bits where you don't know you can go on but it's 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 worth it in the end and that's all part of the package and it helps you grow that um, tension so just you know I hope don't worry if you're feeling that I just wanted to say that because I realized doing a course where someone's going yay I'm kind of boosting you along you can get like a little bit of a spring back where you feel your like or kind of inadequate to the ideal version of what it should be producing, and that isn't it's you've got to make it work for you. And the same if you're working on a novel and you're finding bits difficult or whatever, or you've had to take a break, or you just have taken a break through sort of being a bit disorganized, that's fine get in touch if you want to let me know how you're getting on. It'd be lovely to hear from you. You can uh, get in touch with me via my website, timcladpower.co.uk. There's a little contact me button on the right. Love to hear from you. And I myself will endeavor to uh, be kind to myself when I write as well and to continue to write and write lots so I can continue to like report back honestly about what it's what it's like to be a writer, rather than just guessing. Um, But of course, the bread and butter of Death of a Thousand Cuts is reading your work, is me reading your work and looking for ways to make it better. And uh, that's what we're doing today. We're going back to basics. I'm going to run through a 250-word extract of the beginning of one of your novels, and then I'm going to talk about it and talk about ways that we might make it better. I um, want i send one of your novels. I mean, I don't mean you personally. I mean, a listener has sent it in. If you haven't sent me in anything, you can be reasonably sure that it's not you. I'm going to stick the text up on my website. Underneath, when I when I post this podcast, I'll stick it up on my website, timclairpoet.co.uk, as I just said. So um, if you want to read along or pause and have a read, um, then you can, because uh, all of this is about you building your own self-editing skills. So this isn't just about you listening to me. I know it's fun to listen to me uh, talk about it, and it can be sort of vaguely helpful. But if you want to get the most out of this, and I don't object to your just listening while you um, do something else, if you want to get the most out of the podcast, I suggest you read the extract, have a think about what you think about it, and then compare notes with me. You don't have to actually write stuff down, but just have a read through it and see if you can identify what you think is working for you and what isn't. So um, today's submission, it doesn't have a title, and it's the first 250 words of a novel by Sam. Thank you, Sam. Noor looked out over the sea of grass, breathing hard, hands slippery with sweat. The yellow blades rippled in the wind, so that the plains were like the flanks of some great beast inhaling. Half a league away, the village stood on a hill, a handful of fifty antelope hide huts, quickly put together, not built to last. A ribbon of smoke curled up from them, and as she got closer, the ash tang of burning wood filled the air. She drew Yenenga, the sword steel bright. That the village was still here was a bad sign. The inhabitants should have unpacked and moved on a day ago, fleeing the wall of shift that had swept over this part of the steppe. The warping, breaking force sucked at her face as she approached, causing something inside her to shudder, not strong enough to harm her. Above, the shattered geometry of the sun fragments was setting, casting the grass in a bloodlight. She felt the answering glow of sunlight within her, certain and strong, smiled despite herself. A piece of that same sun had fallen in the village, an opportunity for power for those bold enough to claim it. Whatever was in the village now would be dangerous. A challenge, finally, after so long wandering. Under her arm, the weight of her helm dragged her left side down. She could put it on, felt its urge to be worn, but she didn't need it. Not yet. She slowed as she neared the first hut. A man sat in a bamboo chair outside, head sunk downwards, skin so weathered it was like the rough grass. She thought he was dead, but he stirred when she approached. Her sword flared in her hand, ready. And here are my thoughts. Nor looked out over the sea of grass, breathing hard, hands slippery with sweat. As a first line, this could be considerably worse, Sam. You've given us a named character, a clear visual environment. You've established a narrative present. This is action that is taking place now as we watch. And there's some implied tension with the breathing hard and sweaty hands. All good stuff. And if you think I'm winding up some sarcastic counterprunch... You're wrong. Uh, How dare you? This sentence has many robust features, often missing in a lot of the work I see. So well done. Would I change anything? Of course. Looked out over is weaker than a crash helmet made of dog biscuits. Normally we'd say, looked out over... About a, a window with a view, the balcony looked out over crisply manicured rose gardens and the charred remnants of the tennis courts or something like that. It implies elevation as well as interiority. Um, what's nor looking out of or from? I'd switch it to gazed. I, I just think it's an unhelpful ambiguity. It's not completely wrong, but it just threw me slightly. Sea of grass... Uh, nor looked out over the sea of grass, is a cliché. Having written scenes involving cornfields, I know how difficult it is not to describe any expanse of swaying pointy vegetation as a sea or an ocean. And there's are such clichés, we don't even register that they're metaphors. The language has been rogered to death. Now, I'm not saying that the phrase, a sea of grass, is necessarily always and forever verboten. It's not jarringly awful, just dead. We use dead or deadish language all the time in novels. Sometimes the quickest way between two points is a straight line. I mean, it's always the quickest way between two points, unless I suppose you can teleport. You know, maybe the bit isn't important, uh, and you just opt for the simple, direct. Cliché, that's not a capital offence. Sometimes it's genuinely the least worst option. Certainly when you're writing a first draft, it's often better to keep your forward momentum and flag up lazy or slack lines for revision later on. If you can't think of anything super, super original, that's fine. Just put down the cliche, uh, highlight it, and then move on and come back to it later. You don't want to lose half an afternoon uh, figuring out a really cool dialogue beat, Steve picked his nose with the end of the gun and spat or whatever. don't steal that, that's mine. Um, but you don't want to spend an afternoon coming up with that really cool dialogue beat and then end up cutting the whole scene and you don't you don't end up using it you know you can fix all of this stuff in post but the issue here is this is your first line. First line is like a penis. It doesn't have to be fancy, but a little grooming goes a long way, especially if you're showing it to strangers for money. It can be long or short, subtly curved or pungent and absurd, but it cannot, cannot be dull. And of course, there's such a thing as too long, breathing hard, hands slippery with sweat. Feels to me like you're saying the same thing twice. I mean, not literally the same thing, but they perform the same function. Just one of those beats, the panting, the sweaty palms, tells us Nor has either exerted herself or is afraid. Choose one, cut the other. The line will have much more punch if you pick your best detail rather than stacking two that convey broadly the same implicit information. The yellow blades rippled in the wind so that the planes were like the flanks of some great beast inhaling. The yellow blades rippled is confusing. I briefly thought you were referring to swords. Of course, reading on that ambiguity is easily dismissed, but the beginning of a novel is a place where so much is just swimming in a black void and we're grabbing onto every noun we can and one or two missteps like this can fatally weaken the reader's trust in you before you're underway. Also, describing them as blades encourages us to picture the individual stalks of grass, but then in the next clause, you're trying to conjure this grand vista of stretching in all directions, which is a sort of broad, collective thing. I think you need to pick one or the other. I think the the, the kind of rapid zoom out doesn't help. I like the simile. The flanks of some great beast is visual and it sets the tone, but I think it comes too late to save the sentence. Only 25 words in and you've already described the same thing variously as grass, yellow blades and the plains. Don't spunk half a thesaurus over your narrative for fear that you'll use the same word twice. That's a really, really bad impulse. And if you find that without synonyms, you've written a paragraph where the same word appears again and again and again... Brilliant, you are very probably waffling, something that synonym-itis only serves to obscure. So cut the synonyms, cut the additional uses of the word, and then get to the point quicker maybe. And those repeated nouns will magically vanish. Um, may I humbly suggest, Sam, that you truncate what you've got here. So instead, you'd open with something like, Noor gazed across the plains, her hands slippery with sweat grass rippled in the wind, like the flanks of some great beast inhaling. That's cleaner, easier to see without all the fluff. You'll notice that we've also lost that awkward so-that-the formulation. Anywhere you can scrape away some clumsy grammatical gristle, do so. Half a league away, the village stood on a hill. A handful of 50 antelope hide huts, quickly put together, not built to last. A handful of 50 antelope hide huts. Damn, Those are some big-ass hands. This sentence perfectly encapsulates why syntax is so important, especially in your opening scene. The primacy-recency effect. Write it down, remember it. The primacy-recency effect. The first and last part of an utterance is what a listener retains. Therefore, if you want your prose to be impactful, the opening of a sentence and the ending of a sentence should contain the most important information. The primacy recency effect. The most important noun in this rat's nest of clauses is village. Half a league away the village stood on a hill, a handful of 50 antelope hide huts quickly put together, not built to last. Nor is heading for the village, that's what she's interested in, because we discover if we read on what sounds like this weird wave of evil or chaotic energy has swept over the land. So you could cut all this and write, half a league away stood the village. The term league is a helpful genre signpost. I think that's quite nice, actually. Um, But I think your very next sentence has to give us some sense of why we should give a shit. Why does it matter? Like... I like the line in the second paragraph, that the village was still here, was a bad sign. OK, great, something's wrong. And that's an interesting reversal. I don't know why that thing is wrong. Normally we'd expect growing dread if the village had vanished. But presumably these people are semi-nomadic, I guess, and Nor was hoping that they'd sensed the danger and, and bailed. That's a cool tension. What's happened? So I I, I like because it's it's an original problem for Nor to face. I mean, I'd go so far to say that that could even be your first or second line. The village was still there. That was a bad sign. Nor gazed across the plains, her hands slippery with sweat. Grass rippled in the wind, like the flanks of some great beast inhaling. That's exciting, right? Very simple word choices, but it's arresting. It wrongfoots the reader without making them think that you've lost control as the author. Actually, now I've said all that, I'm forcibly reminded of the opening to Octavia Butler's Wild Seed. Doro discovered the woman by accident when he went to see what was left of one of his seed villages. The village was a comfortable mud-walled place surrounded by grasslands and scattered trees. But Doro realised even before he reached it that its people were gone. But there is amazingly no nonsense in this opening scene she I know I've talked about it before but it is really good she hits you with a bunch of lore very matter-of-factly but delivered through the concerns of this one particular viewpoint character so although she's being very straightforward with us and not holding anything back at all we don't yet have the context to understand what we're seeing but she explains what is there very simply she's not being coy the whole novel is really confident with its world building I think in part because it was written as a prequel so the world and the characters and the lore and what eventually happens to them was already in place so it just hits the ground running and Doro does stuff that makes you think you've misread and you follow it going what 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 did he just do and you chase it desperate to know what's going on and what's going to happen next and the story is in motion this isn't an explanation of backstory the uh, chase is afoot and things are happening and continue to happen and problems face the characters right from the beginning quickly put together, not built to last. So you're saying the same thing twice. Pick one. In fact, pick neither. They're antelope hide huts. You've already told us that. Unless you're worried the reader's going to think that they're made of the special antelope hide that endures for centuries when used as an external wall. A ribbon of smoke curled up from them, and as she got closer, the ash tag of burning wood filled the air. I was unclear what's supposed to be going on here. What does Nor think she's seeing and smelling? A single cook fire? Smoke from a chimney? Is is the village on fire? I'm not being sarcastic. I genuinely don't know how she interprets this. Even changing burning wood to firewood would go a little way towards clarifying. The inhabitants should have unpacked and moved on a day ago. I'm confused. Unpacked? Isn't that what you do when you get somewhere, not when you leave? Even if it is some special term to do with loading up beasts of burden or something, or some in-universe term, it's jarring here. I'm confused. She drew Yanenga, the sword steel bright. So my first problem with this is that I kept picturing the dragonfly Pokemon Yanmega, which, look Sam, if at this point it became clear you were writing a pulp fantasy sword and sorcery, but in a blighted world where Pokemon trainers were humanity's last hope, I'd be 100% behind you, believe you me. I'd be scrambling up onto my roof to bellow your genius at the unlettered Philistines, too blinkered to recognise it, but you're not. Which brings me... My second problem, I like sword and sorcery, Sam. I like high fantasy. I like ripping yarns. Whatever genre you're writing, you never, ever have to apologise for it. This goes for everyone listening. And you never, ever, ever have to change your writing to appease critics who aren't going to read what you do anyway. You're allowed to write whatever the fuck you like. That's the fundamental great freedom of creative writing. You can't compel people to like it. You can't guarantee you'll receive money for it. You can't demand that no one criticise it. But it is yours. This line is very sword and sorcery. She drew Yanenga, the sword, steel, bright. Uh, We have a named sword. We have steel flashing in the light. And I just think if you're really writing for genre fans, show them the respect they deserve. You can write classic, but don't write cliched like I'm slowly working through uh, Roger Zelazny's The Chronicles of Amber and it's pulp fantasy with bits in our world and bits in a fantasy setting and the quality is um, the quality is varied but when he hits a good streak it's really really good and it kind of makes it worth it and and yes there are lots of sword fights but he makes them interesting and weird the heroes have a massive sword fight on horseback while descending a huge flight of stairs underwater and when someone's wounded in that fight he describes the blood uh, rising like smoke in the water and it's ridiculous and spectacular and amazing it's completely stupid but it's also brilliant and it does something that you can only do in a pulp fantasy novel because if you were writing literary fiction and you said okay I'm gonna have a Sword fight on horseback, underwater, uh, down some stairs, where if you step off the edge of the stairs, you immediately lose the ability to breathe underwater and drown or get crushed by the pressure, you're not allowed. You, you're you not allowed. Your editor would come back to you and go, oh, no, too silly, Tim. Cut it out. This wouldn't happen. Couldn't you have him... Couldn't you have him be... Um, instead of coming down some stairs underwater, couldn't he be a sad middle-class straight man who doesn't really love his wife anymore. And they're having a slow divorce and his job isn't very nice. You know, that's what you have to do if you're writing lit fiction. Sorry, lit fiction fans. Um, But no, 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 of course, like, of course, like, pulp fantasy has its flaws. And if you're going to set up straw men of genres, you can slag off any genre. But you might as well lean into the stuff it does well, right? Uh, The same with literary fiction. You might as well lean into the fact that you're allowed to describe things in interesting ways and have characters have feelings and talk about the real world and that be enough. You don't waste what the genre does well. And, and, And even though... You know, what Zelazny wrote um, absolutely typifies the genre, even though it's unapologetically sword and sorcery, it's also original and interesting. There's nothing original about a sword still flashing as the hero draws it. Nothing to make us go, ooh, or draw us in. If the sword spoke or pulsed like a living thing or heated up in anticipation of battle, if it were broken or sweating blood or made of smoked glass, uh, anything that makes us go, this is a cool, slash, weird, slash, scary sword. That'd be brilliant. None of those things are, by the way, original, but they are more interesting than just the steel flashing, right? No, you. I don't know what level of magic you've got in this story, and I don't know what plans you've got for the sword. But at the moment, the way it appears is is kind of boring. I mean, you don't even tell us what kind of sword it is. Is it a saber, a broadsword, a katana, a a scimitar, something more interesting and cool? You know, you don't have to spend ages describing it, but the few words where you introduce it should be good ones. I'm going to go ahead and suggest maybe don't even make it a sword. It doesn't have to have silly powers, but a sword is such a, is, is, is such a tiny sort of subset of all the different weapons that um, have been available through history. And I, I think swords are kind of done and it would be nice to have something else, whatever. But you have to make it more interesting than it just going shing and having a name. I like the description of the warping, breaking force that sucks at her face. That's a nice engagement of the reader's five senses. And it's interesting and it's kind of scary. I was slightly frustrated by Nor resisting the Helm's urge to be worn because it was almost intriguing that moment, that di- hint of a distinct will in her armour as if it has its own, it's possessed by some sentience. But she holds back and I'm like, why? Like either the situation is going to be dangerous or it isn't. And if the Helm's power comes open, bunny quotes, at a terrible price, close bunny quotes, so she's resisting until she has no choice because, I don't know, she she puts it on and it turns her into kind of like Psycho Popeye or whatever. Um, you need to make that clearer, right? You need to make it clearer. She's not just going, now, 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 not yet, Psycho Popeye helmet you need to actually um have some reason why she's genuinely conflicted about putting it on um otherwise it just feels needlessly coy it's just like going shall I put my armor on yet my super powerful armor as I walk towards this situation of almost certain peril I don't need it quite yet no I won't bother no I want to wouldn't it be exciting if I didn't it's just like, no, don't be, it just seems incompetent. If she's alarmed enough to draw her sword, which is going to make people feel threatened if she's got it outright, then surely she'll put the helm on, something that's not exactly easy to do in the heat of battle. Probably less easy to do while being attacked than drawing a sword. The mention of sun fragments threw me slightly. I realise you're introducing what is likely a plot-critical concept at this point and rereading a few times. I felt more confident that this was some form of magical unobtainium that can be disastrous if it falls into the wrong hands. But I think your initial image is too fiddly. Potentially really, really cool. Like, the idea of a shattered sun is, like, fucking awesome, right? Like, that is an exciting image. But it just felt too fiddly and it just went off slightly half-cocked. Just say the sun fragments were setting. That's nice, right? And then you can do a second sentence where you say, their shattered geometries soaked the grass in a bloodlight. So you have concept, then poetic imagery, once you've established the basic weird thing, right? In fantasy especially, sometimes you have to pick stuff apart or just be very blunt so readers can tell the difference between your metaphors and what is literally a really weird thing that doesn't exist in re- real life. Because you know, like actually you could be reading literary fiction and someone say the shattered fragments of the setting sun dipped behind the hill. And you you'd like no literary reader would go, Fuck. So the sun is broken into shards. What terrible of how would that even work? They would just go, you're being poetic. Whereas in fantasy we need to know whether literally the sun has been exploded or broken by some magical curse and now exists in pieces, right? And that and that's what's that's why I love fantasy, deeply, deeply in my heart. I'm sorry, literary fiction writers, if it sounds like I'm I'm just playing with you because people think that what you write is is better. And I'm actually shelved under literary fiction myself I just I just have love for pulp writers anyway overall Sam I like this uh or at least I like what it's aspiring to be that sounds like a neg kind of is um but you're super great and uh you are an amazing person uh this piece needs work but that's cool but uh, I just think you need to get to the punch quicker really like I like the content actually a lot I mean I think you need to push yourself and not settle on obvious beats uh boil your sentences down to the pithiest summations i'm not by the way suggesting that you haven't spent ages on to make on, on bringing this to the best quality it can be. I'm just going to say you are a better better writer than this. This is not your end point. This is just a beginning for you. I think you would be surprised at how brilliant you can be if you push yourself further. I just think you, you've imposed an artificial ceiling on your own writing. So I, I want you to boil your sentences down to the pithiest summations of whatever you want to get across. Have the prose mirror the alert, telegraphic nature of Noor's thoughts as she approaches the village. She's taking in her surroundings in little gulps and little sips and little snaps, assessing the danger. Keep your sentences short. Don't be afraid of using sentence fragments. By all means, write classic, but don't take that as diplomatic immunity to be shit. Um, one of the great advantages of writing in a genre your readers are familiar with is how much groundwork is already done for you. So you can just skip over a few things. They will start filling in the gaps because it's familiar. That's great. You should use that. But... Um, you should reward genre savvy readers by giving them stuff they've never seen before because you are free to get on with developing character and story when a lot of the genre work has been done but also have fun and throw in some surprises because that is great and it will wake readers up and they'll go oh i don't know what to expect now this is a genre of awe and awesomeness and uh, you want to lean into that hard sam give us more And thank you very much. And that's it for today. I want your submissions. When people like Sam are generous enough to share their work, it helps all of us learn and get better. That's what being part of a community is all about. So you're not just doing it for yourself, friends. You're doing it for everyone who listens to this podcast. And you are admittedly doing it for me. So I have content to churn out. Some of you have um, submitted already. Thank you for your contributions. It's really wonderful. Uh, Many of you have sent me messages saying you're building up the courage to send something. Just know that there's no pressure I don't expect you to send something it would be lovely if you did and dead helpful but um I appreciate every submission but I understand it's a big deal for some people to put their work out there when you think about how many writers are listening each episode it's like literally taking part in one of the biggest creative writing workshops in the world but on the other hand most people do find it useful and if you can do this you'll pretty much break yourself of your fear of sharing your work with others and being able to share and get feedback is a really important way of growing as a writer in fact I'm going to go ahead and say if you're not able to share your work and get feedback you're going to really really struggle and so it will be lovely you don't have to share doesn't mean doesn't mean i'm not cursing you i'm not saying like oh if you don't send something into the podcast you're going to struggle i mean if you can't find friends that you're able to confide in and people that you're able to share with at all then getting your writing to the level it needs to be is going to be tricky uh, and i hope you i hope you can share because you're you know, you're you're allowed to write and you're not stupid for writing and your writing will have all sorts of positive aspects to it even if it's not where you need it to be and actually, what happens when you share stuff? The fear isn't, you know, you're you're afraid. afraid what if it's bad? It, and then you find out it is. You were you were right. You share it, and it, people are like, I don't like this. But you don't die, and they don't hate you. and actually it's just a piece of writing and they often suggest ways and you go yeah I could change that oh that would make it better and then you're like oh this is just tweakable and malleable and it has all those qualities those temporary qualities that actually make it quite exciting and then you just don't feel so precious so um if you've got the first 250 words of a novel you want to send me please go to my website timclairepoet.co.uk and click the contact me link on the right there you'll also find all the previous episodes of this here podcast and about 200,000 Words of Death of a Thousand Cuts blogs where I look at dozens of first pages just like Sam's. There's also a button that says rather presumptuously, buy me a coffee. If you enjoy the show, if you get value out of it and you want to support what I do, you can click on that little tab, you can drop me a little something to keep the lights on here at Clare Towers. It's really easy to do. You just it, There's like two clicks and then you can just send it through PayPal or something like that. If you'd like to do that, I'd really appreciate it. Um, Thank you so much if you've done that already. I'm really amazed, actually. Loads of people have sent me little donations or kind of little kickbacks or little thank yous. Thanks, guys. It means an awful, awful, awful lot. I genuinely thought I would get nothing. I didn't think, I thought, why would people, it just seemed silly to ask people. But I have learned in life not to underestimate people's generosity and goodwill and community spirit and you're just fucking awesome and it's um it's uh it's it's really helped me out actually in terms of being able to continue the podcast it's covered my costs and i'm so 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 grateful it's always going to sound slightly self-serving saying that on a podcast while sort of asking people if they're prepared to chuck some money in. And it probably is slightly self-serving, but that doesn't mean that my gratitude isn't completely and 100% real. Thank you so, so, so bloody much. Oh, and I should say, um, on my, if you check out my blog at the moment on my website, I've put up a big, big post called The Super Fan Handbook, 17 Powerful Ways to Support Authors. And it's got all these different ways that you can, big and small, that you can support authors that you love if you want to change writing culture if you want to find ways of supporting any writers who aren't just straight white middle class and male right like uh you want to kind of like push their work and get it seen and sold and help their careers it's got all the most powerful ways you can do that some of them take a long time some of them are really quick uh one or two like buying the book um uh, cost money and most of them don't cost you anything and even when I'm talking about buying the book, actually, there's, I'm talking about how and when to buy the book to leverage the maximum impact. So all of it's about um, sort of increasing your footprint as a reader to disproportionately um, shift the culture in ways that we want, which is to make it more diverse, more interesting and kinder. So if you go on my website... Uh, TimClapert.co.uk. that's the last time i'm going to say that web address you can read that i'd really appreciate your thoughts on it because if there's any way I, ways i can make that article better i'd love to and if you would give it a share i would also feel super super grateful uh, same goes for the podcast i have a novel out called the honors it's an adventure set in 1935 i think you'd like it it's out in paperback ebook and audiobook so get yourself a cof- copy uh, get yourself a coffee if you like and see what happens when I put all this uh, bullshit into action right oh I'm done right so um, if you're not doing the Couch to 80k course um, at the moment I would still say to you try to get a timed 10 minute writing session in today if you can just set your timer for 10 minutes and write about whatever you like I guarantee you uh, it will be worth it you will feel I guarantee you you will not feel worse at the end of it than at the beginning I can absolutely promise you that Oops, something just fell off my shelf so I'm going to go now I believe in you my friend take care and I'll see you next time